You can turn to Isaiah chapter 36. Almost forgot. Fortunately, I got it written down. Isaiah 36. And this morning, we are going to finish up today with our, uh, with our five-part mini-series on the life and reign of King Hezekiah. But before we do that, what I want to do is just a quick review for you um, uh, of the last four weeks that we've been talking about this guy and his reign, because I know it's summer, and I know that there's probably not a single person here who has not missed at least one service and at least missed at least one of these messages over the last few weeks. So um, let me go ahead and, and review where we have been and what we have seen so far, just for a minute. Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah, which was Israel's southern kingdom, in the late 700s B.C. And this was a time of great intrigue, a time of great chaos, a time of great danger for God's people. Judah was surrounded by enemies on just about every side, and because of some really bad decisions by King Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father, the nation was not walking with God, and they basically were a sitting duck. Uh, both spiritually and militarily at that time, with the ruthless Assyrian Empire under the leadership of the very brutal and very capable King Sennacherib, getting ready to pretty much blow through the entire region and completely destroy Judah. That's what could happen. But as the title of our series suggests, God was going to use King Hezekiah to turn the tide. Uh, God graciously gave Hezekiah uh, through a series of events, about 14 years to prepare for this big Assyrian invasion. And we saw in week two that the first thing that Hezekiah did uh, was, when he became king, was not to reinforce his military, although you might think that's what somebody would do in this situation. No. Instead, he reinforced his nation's relationship with God. He cleansed the temple. He rededicated the temple, the temple that his father had so shamefully corrupted. And then he reinstituted the Passover, which hadn't been celebrated in many years. And, and this led to really a great nationwide revival, spiritual revival, of God's people. We then saw in weeks three and four that in the intervening time before the Assyrians were to come and invade Jeruda, Judah and threaten Jerusalem, that God subjected Hezekiah to two great tests. Uh, the first test was a fatal illness for which Hezekiah prayed to the Lord desperately, and God healed him. The second test, which we saw last week, Hezekiah did not exactly pass with flying colors. The second test involved a time of blessing and prosperity, which led Hezekiah to stumble into pride and self-confidence. But God did some things to humble Hezekiah, and so the king repented of his pride and once again sought the Lord. So that's where we are. Now we are up to the climactic moment. This will be the last week. This is the climactic moment of Hezekiah's reign, and a huge moment in the history of God's people. This pivotal story is told in three different Old Testament books, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah's version, which is in Isaiah chapter 36, and I'm just going to start by reading you the first couple of verses, and we'll read the story kind of as we come to it. It says this, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, it may say the field commander or something like that, that's, I guess that's the, the uh, term in the original language there, a military leader, from Lachish to King Hezekiah in, at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway 
to the washer's field. We'll stop there. As we study this passage, we're going to see a couple of amazing parallels. Uh, And these don't jump out at us right away, but they are details that Isaiah definitely does not want us to miss. And, And both the details that we'll see are going to point us to, and we'll look at them in a minute, but they'll point us to a particular theme. And that is the theme of refuge. Refuge. And we're all going to need to ask ourselves this morning, where is my refuge? Where is our refuge? What is our refuge? We have had a lot of storms this week, have we not? Especially up in the north part of the county. I heard it's not as bad down south, but it's been, Davis County has gotten hit with a bunch of storms. It has kept Courtney guessing every night. Do we have VBS games outside? Can we have the pool party? That sort of thing. It's been up and down. But I'll tell you, things that we have faced here have been nothing compared to what some of our brothers and sisters have faced in the St. Louis area and over in um, eastern Kentucky, not too far away, where a lot of communities suddenly found themselves underwater. Uh, Now, you never know when these things are going to come. And it's the same way with the storms of life. You know, when we all face storms, they may not be literal storms of, of rain and water and wind and lightning, but, but we all face storms of life, we call them, these moments that overwhelm us, these crises that, that hit us and we can't handle them. They're, they're threats from which we can not easily protect ourselves. And in these times, we don't need to fight back so much as to have a place to take refuge. We need a fortress to hide in. We need an ally who is stronger than us to fight this battle because we cannot win this one on our own. All of us, at one time or another, are going to need that. We're going to need a refuge. We're going to need a hiding place. We're going to need a place of shelter. We're going to need someone that is stronger and more capable than we are to fight that battle. Now, when you read these these Old Testament historical passages, sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out the geographical background and to get a good picture physically of what's going on. And this passage can be kind of confusing that way. One thing I really wanted to know was, well, what does it look like here? Where where are we in Jerusalem when this field commander comes up and and challenges the city? Where where is this place Isaiah is describing in verse 2, the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field? And I thought, well, I know there's some people like sitting on the wall. How, How close is it to the walls of the city that these people could hear this threat, that kind of thing? And so I looked up the area, and I looked at some maps of Jerusalem, and I discovered... Uh, one thing, this place is actually right by the city wall, and it's right near uh, that spring that Hezekiah so strategically rerouted to provide his city with water in preparing for the siege, which is kind of interesting, but it's not nearly as interesting as what I found just by looking at a little note in my Bible, in my study Bible, that said, Isaiah 7.3. I'm like, I wonder what that means. So I turned to Isaiah 7.3. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read you some of this. If you go to Isaiah 7.3, you will find out that earlier in Isaiah's ministry, back when he was a young prophet, 30 years before this, God had sent Isaiah to meet Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz. And it says the place they met, here it is, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Coincidence? Probably not. And at that time, Ahaz was, was worried about an invasion from two nations, and those two nations were Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, and then the northern kingdom of Israel. They had allied themselves, and they were threatening to attack Judah from the north. But Isaiah brought, brought um, a message from God to Ahaz that said this, don't worry about these two nations. Don't worry about these two kings who are making all this noise because in a couple of years, these nations won't even exist anymore. 
And then God said to Ahaz, basically, I will protect you from them. I will be your refuge. And Ahaz, I'm promising you this, so ask for any sign you want, and I'll give it to you. But Ahaz responded, tragically it turns out, he said, basically, God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to take care of this thing my own way. And instead of making God his refuge, Ahaz chose to take refuge in the strongest army of the time, the strongest possible ally of the time, which happened to be Assyria. And so Ahaz formed an alliance with the brutal Assyrian Empire. Now fast forward, 30 years later, same place. The commander of the Assyrian army is now standing on the exact same plot of ground where Ahaz made this fateful decision. And he is now threatening the nation of Judah with extinction. And this is not an idle threat. Let's just listen to some of what this commander has to say, starting in, we won't read the whole thing, but start in verse 13 here of Isaiah 36. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. This is psychological warfare he wants all the people to understand. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So Hezekiah has some officials there that are by the wall listening to this speech from this field commander. And when they get to Hezekiah to report to him what the guy said, they have torn their clothes, which at that time was a sign of mourning. It was basically, they're showing up before Hezekiah and the torn clothes basically say, Hezekiah, we're toast. What happened? Well, Isaiah is deliberately calling us back to the time of King Ahaz to remind us of two things that Ahaz got wrong when he refused God's promised protection in the first place. Not only did Ahaz choose the wrong refuge, he actually chose the wrong storm. He got the storm wrong. In fact, what he thought was his refuge, Assyria, turned out to be the storm. Not good. And like King Ahaz, many people today, some of us sometimes, end up taking refuge in things that in the end turn out to be no refuge at all. And sometimes those things can actually be the agent of people's own destruction. What we thought was the refuge turns out to be the storm itself. For instance, it is possible in this very uncertain and scary world to seek refuge in material possessions because you think that 
That's where the real security lies in this world, right? So if I can just get enough of a money cushion, if I can just plan ahead enough, if I can just get the right investments, if I can just get the right insurance and make the right decisions, then I can, I can withstand any recession or I can withstand any big expensive event that comes into life and we'll be okay. But you know as well as I do, there are many types of storms from which your money will not protect you. And in the meantime, the very process of getting and protecting all that money and all that stuff may come to rule your life and corrupt your very soul as the things that you thought you owned end up owning you. There are other ways to seek refuge. Some people seek refuge in keeping themselves as physically healthy as possible, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's your ultimate backstop and your ultimate refuge, it doesn't work. Others are just really, really cautious, and, and a, lot, we, a lot of us do that. You can, you can try to build a wall of protection around you and your family, and you can succeed for a while. You can keep your family close. You can shield them from dangerous people and dangerous situations the best you know how. You can discourage them from trying anything risky or new, and you can turn life into a very small and sheltered experience where no one ever learns to depend on God because you made sure they never had to. And it's very hard for faith to develop in that kind of hermetically sealed environment. It mostly just dies out. What's happening? You're seeking refuge from the wrong storm. You're seeking refuge from the wrong storm. Jesus said it like this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What Jesus is saying there is that ultimately the real storms in life are not the ones that threaten your finances, your reputation, your home, your health, and even your physical life, but the ones that threaten your soul by keeping you from making that soul-preserving connection to the real refuge, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is indeed a thief, Jesus says, that comes to steal and kill and destroy. And yes, because of that, we do need a refuge. But please remember this, that thief is much less interested in taking away your stuff than he is in destroying your faith. The thief wants to blind you to your true need, which is to find eternal life by trusting in Jesus. Amen. This past week at VBS, you heard that at least two of our children found their true refuge. Praise God trusting in the name of Jesus Christ. They are now protected from life's most terrible storms. And get this, to the extent that those two boys continue to grow in their faith, they will be able to truly live life to its fullest, free to get out of their comfort zone and follow Jesus into some of the hard places in life where the real satisfaction of the Christian life comes from. Because they know that the lesser storms cannot ultimately destroy them or defeat them. Think about it. Is it really possible to protect ourselves from every possible storm that might come our way? Is it really possible to protect everything in our lives from every possible storm that might come our way? Every tragedy that life might throw at us? Back in seminary, um, our family lived in a mobile home, and there was a, uh, there was a tornado siren in the community we lived in. Uh, it was mostly seminary students there. And, and when the tornado siren went off, which it did on more than one occasion, we were down in Columbia, um, we were supposed to head for campus and go into the student center. And so we, we'd hear the siren and we'd look around the, the trailer and our biggest question was, well, what do we take? Well, we're going to take our son, that's a no-brainer. Or right, what else do we take? Well, the big question was, do we take our pet birds or not? 
Um, they were in these big cages, and the first time the siren went off, we did. We took them with us, but the second time we decided the cages and all were just too much to carry, so if the tornado actually came, the birds would just have to sort of figure it out, you know. <laughs> but, um, but we did realize at that time, you can't protect everything. You can't protect everything. Not to mention, when we got to the student center, I remember thinking that a big part of this building's exterior was made of glass. And there wasn't a whole lot to the building's interior, so as a tornado shelter, it left a lot to be desired. But you know what? It was the best that the school could do for us under such circumstances. And sometimes that's all we can do, the best we can do. There are a lot of tragedies that we can never fully protect ourselves from, right? Accidents, serious illness, violent crime. Are Christians immune from these things? No, you know that. And Hezekiah certainly discovered here his own limits when it came to protecting his people. In fact, a number of them, as the first verse told us there in chapter 36, were lost during the Assyrian invasion. The ones that were outside the walls of Jerusalem typically were not as lucky as the ones who got inside the walls of Jerusalem. Here's what was going on. You see, Judah was not the final stop on the Assyrian campaign to the south. They were headed really for Egypt, which was a much bigger fish. And Jerusalem, now Jerusalem's pretty, pretty important, but Jerusalem was farther west and up into the mountains and kind of out of the way, not really on the way down toward Egypt, down by the Mediterranean. And so a, a lot, but a lot of other Judean cities and towns were. And on the way south, the Assyrians destroyed 46 towns of Judah and took the people captive. One of those towns was Lachish. And from Lachish, which is about 40 miles kind of east-southeast of Jerusalem, or west-southwest of Jerusalem, um, Sennacherib, the king, he was there. And he sent his field commander on kind of a side mission to go up into the mountains and take care of Hezekiah and Jerusalem. But he did not underestimate the difficulty of this task, and he wanted to make sure Hezekiah was taking him seriously. And so he sent an army of at least 185 thousand soldiers. Now, Hezekiah had not exactly been sitting on his hands. He'd been preparing. He'd been doing his best to secure Jerusalem. In addition to, the, to that tunnel that he had dug, which we talked about last week, he had made some other fortifications, especially to the walls of the city. He had also, probably going against Isaiah's advice, by this time he had actually entered into an alliance with Egypt and a few other nations there to the south. And he had even gone to the point of, of paying a good deal of tribute money to the Assyrians themselves to try to pacify them. In other words, Hezekiah had taken every reasonable precaution and he had made what he thought was every reasonable step, just like we do today. You know, buying insurance policies, purchasing firearms, locking the door of the house, getting your annual checkup. He did all those things. But you know what? This was no protection against 185 thousand Assyrian soldiers who were now surrounding Jerusalem, cutting off the city from access to any supplies or reinforcements. 185,000. Just for reference, all the allies together landed about 150,000 troops on the beaches of Normandy in June of 1944. Bank of America Stadium holds about 74,000 people, so, so what Hezekiah is looking at here is like two and a half Panthers games worth of soldiers, assuming they sell out. <laughs> so this, this, is, this is like, remember Lord of the Rings, the two towers? This is like the big army of orcs that comes up to the gates of Helm's Deep, okay? Only these, these are not CGI soldiers. These are the real thing. 
There is no way to break this siege. There is no way to fight through this army. It's impossible. The field commander knows this, and so after this dramatic opening speech we just read part of, he actually goes back to Lachish for a time, but he, he leaves the army here in place. And I'm skipping ahead a little, but several days into the siege, Hezekiah receives a letter. And the letter comes from King Sennacherib himself. And the text of this letter is found um, starting in verse 10 of chapter 37. So let's go there. 37.10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now here's the letter. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Hezekiah has now tried everything. All reasonable steps have been taken to protect himself and his people. Maybe even including a few steps he shouldn't have taken, like, like allying himself with Egypt. But now he's in a place where, where we often, or sometimes at least, find ourselves, right? Only one refuge left, and that's God himself. And Hezekiah knows this. So how does he, do, how does he go about this? How, how does Hezekiah make God his refuge? Two things to notice. First of all, and this is becoming something of a theme, of course, in this series, he prays. He prays. Now, if that seems like a no-brainer, it's supposed to be a no-brainer. It's also supposed to be a no-brainer for us today to apply this and to pray when we're in trouble. But isn't it amazing how often we Christians will make prayer like plan G or H when it's supposed to be plan A? Oh, I didn't think of that. It should always be the first step. I love how James says it. You know, the book of James is like so straightforward. Here's what James says. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any of you in trouble? Uh, pray. That's James 5.13, so memorize it. You just did. And this is not just any prayer here. This is another one of those heartfelt prayers for Hezekiah, a prayer of desperation, just like when he had that fatal disease, only now he's even more desperate because now there's much more at stake than just his life. This is the future of God's people. This is the future of all the promises that God has made to his people over the ages hanging in the balance of this prayer. This is a big moment. This is a pivotal moment in the whole history of the Old Testament. But Hezekiah's got some experience under his belt now. And what he does is he takes a page from early in his reign and he retreats to his war room. No, not that war room. He didn't go to the military headquarters. He went to his other war room. He went to the place of prayer. He went to the temple. He went to the temple of God. And he takes this letter from Sennacherib and he spreads it out before the Lord. Maybe it's on the floor. Maybe it's on a table. We're not sure. But he basically says, hey, God, um, here's this letter. You read it. That's most of his prayer. God, read this letter from the king of Assyria. I can never read this story without thinking back to something that happened to, at my first church up in Virginia. And I've told you this story, I think, once before. But when I got to that church up in um, um, the western suburbs of D.C., um, the finances of the church were, were in complete disarray. Uh, the treasurer was recovering from a recent heart attack. 
they were shifting money around between different ministry funds, and, and even, even doing that, they were just barely able to pay the mortgage, and they weren't really paying the mortgage. They were just paying the interest on it every month, which was not what they were supposed to be doing. And, and the week, uh, the, this, this, by the way, went back to before they had a pastor, so now they had to pay a pastor too. So they were kind of in trouble. Um, I, I thought, you know what, the next church I go to, I'm going to ask them to show me their, um, their financial statement. And then when I came here, I forgot to do that again, but, I, but God took care of us. But about three months into my ministry there, we received a letter from the mortgage holder threatening foreclosure. And this was a building that housed not one church, but four different alliance churches speaking four different languages, all of whom were having trouble making ends meet at the time. And um, the night that we received, or the week we received that letter, that prayer meeting that week, we had just a few church leaders there and, um, and a few of the prayer warriors in attendance. And we took that foreclosure letter, and that's what we did. We spread it out on the table between us, just like Hezekiah did and we prayed. And over the next few weeks, and I cannot say that I can connect all the dots to this, I I know that we reached some agreements with the other three churches, I know that God brought us a bunch of new people, I know that we met with the lenders, some other things happened, but the bottom line is, um, going forward, the Lord provided enough not only to pay the interest, but the principal on that mortgage every single month, and that church never missed a mortgage payment again. And they paid me too. And I remember thinking, and this is, this is the way we prayed when we got that, that letter on the table. We didn't pray, God, we have a need. You have to help us, which would be the natural way to think of it. No, it was more like this. God, this is your church. This is your building. This is your baby. And if you still want these four churches to be here in this building, you're going to have to do something because we have reached a point where we are helpless to do anything about the contents of this letter. You see, in a moment of real desperation, what became clear to us was that this was really all about God, not about us. It was his battle. And and look at how Hezekiah prays in verses 16 to 19 and how God answers him. It's really cool. He says, O Lord of hosts, this is 37 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then he gets his answer from God through Isaiah, verse 21. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Who have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? against the Holy One of Israel. There's more, but we'll stop there. See, Hezekiah by this time in his life understood something. And it wasn't just Hezekiah that understood. Also, the field commander and and Sennacherib, for that matter, they understood this too. And you can tell from the language, they all knew something that we don't think about, that this was not just a contest between Assyria and Judah. This was not a contest between two nations or two armies or two kings. This was a battle between two gods. 
And Sennacherib, as Hezekiah points out in his prayer, has insulted not men, but God. And God, it's so cool, God dismisses this uppity king, Sennacherib, with one of the most disrespectful and delightful comebacks you will ever see in the Bible. In verses 22 and 23, God says in 23, he says, you haven't just attacked Judah, you're attacking and blaspheming me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use puny little Judah, the virgin daughter of Zion, to defeat you, and it's going to be like when a pretty girl walks away from a jerky guy after telling him off to his face and just flips her hair at him. And the guy is left speechless. That's what God did to Assyria. And then verse 36. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Ezarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This is one of the greatest miracles in the history of God's people. And this even shows up, by the way, in the extra-biblical writings of the time. Uh, Sennacherib, in his own journal, he goes on and on about how he conquered this king and that king and this city and that king. He gives a whole list. But when he gets to Jerusalem, all he can say is this. He says, I shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. That's all he says. Thereby proving that politicians have been using spin to obscure the truth for 2,700 years. But look at the last verses we read there. That last verse takes place about 20 years after these events. But don't miss the parallel that Isaiah is making. Hezekiah, in search of refuge, went into the temple of his God. He prayed and worshiped, and he was delivered. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went into the temple of his God, and while he was praying and worshiping, he was murdered by his own sons. The murder of King Sennacherib represents the final victory of God over the false god of Assyria, who, unlike the true God, could not even manage to protect his own king. And it confirms for us that this whole story of King Hezekiah is not really Hezekiah's story at all. It's God's story. God is the main character. And when we make God our refuge, when we run to God for refuge, it helps us a lot if we understand something. That God will protect us, but he will do it for the sake of his own name. That it's really all about him and not about us and our problems. And that may seem kind of odd to us at first, but think about it. Stop and really think about it. Isn't it actually kind of freeing? If you belong to Jesus, then God is not a supporting actor in your story. You are a supporting actor in God's story. We really need to get that through our heads. But when you think about it, which story would you rather be a part of? Your boring story or God's really exciting story? And it's true. Yeah, we do live in a world where thieves break in and steal, where accidents and tragedies happen, where injury and sickness can easily throw us off course or even kill us sometimes, and where nothing in life ultimately is certain for us so that the surest promise we can ever make to someone really goes something like this, I'll do my best. Right? Are you always going to be there for me? I hope so. I'd like to. I'll do my best. Because there are no guarantees in this life. But 
God is not limited like that. His promises are sure. It is an absolute certainty that God will be victorious in the end of his story, and he will share that victory with everyone who trusts in him, and in the end, he will keep us safe. So whose story are you living? Yours or his? What did Jesus say to his followers who were going through great fiery trials. They weren't in them yet, but Jesus said, you're going to go through them. He says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. These are the very people that we think we can go to for refuge normally, right? They're going to deliver us up, Jesus says. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, some of you, they will put to death but not a hair of your head will perish. Which is it? Both. How is this possible? It's possible because Jesus has done something for us that will keep us perfectly safe even if we die. He promises to protect us through the ultimate storm. This is one of the greatest benefits of that phrase the Apostle Paul uses over and over again, over a hundred times, in Christ. In Christ. We are in Christ. And to be in Christ, the Bible tells us, is to be in God. Our life wrapped up in His. Our story wrapped up in His. For you have died, Colossians 3.3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's that for a refuge? Now how can this be the case for us? What exactly has Jesus done to make it possible, and where do we look for assurance that we will have this refuge? You know what I'm going to say. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to the place where he purchased us as his own forever and ever. The place where he conquered all of your sin and defeated the final enemy who was death. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. A home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. The hymn writers get it. Where do you run for refuge? Where does your safety and security ultimately come from? What is the backstop in your life when you inevitably come up against a storm that you cannot weather? When everyone else deserts you and every other place of refuge is compromised or destroyed or, or exposed for the failure that it is, Christ remains. Christ remains. Jesus still stands. Amen. He alone is our refuge. Let's pray.